and adults. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17. And again, as we're continuing on in our look at Christ, and particularly the threefold office that he holds of prophet, priest, and king. And so we've spent time looking at the prophetic office, we've spent time, spent time looking at the priestly office, and so now we're working through what the Bible has to say about the kingly office. And particularly this evening, we're going to look at Israel's need for a perfect king. But before we go any further, let's go before God and seek His presence uh, as we come to His Word. Father, we thank You again that You are the King of love, that as the King of love, You are a good shepherd. Father, we think of the words of Your Son that as He is the good shepherd, He displays that goodness in laying down His life for the sheep. Father, we pray that uh, we would truly follow His loving guidance, that we would not be like stubborn sheep that turn aside to our own ways, but, Father, that we would in every way acknowledge Him, that we would follow His guidance and direction in our lives, that He would um, guide our steps and that we would willingly follow what He calls us to. Father, I pray that as we look to Your Word today, that it would be the sharp two-edged sword that pierces to the dividing of the soul and, and marrow, Father, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Father, we ask, Lord, that You would change us not just externally, but, Lord, as You have determined in Your Word to change us from the inside out, changing our hearts, Father, so that our actions would be transformed. Father, we just ask that you would work in our midst by your Spirit, guide and direct in all things. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we've been spending time looking at uh, the patriarchs in particular recently as kings. And we, we looked at how Abraham, how Isaac, how Jacob, and then in particular how Joseph recently, as we looked at that, how they fulfilled this role as king. And so what we're doing now is we're sort of going to skip over the time of the Exodus and, and uh, what Moses had done, and we're skipping to the end of that period of time where we come to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is given as, and it's listed, or the, literally, the name literally means second giving of the law. Now, remember, before Israel began their journey from Egypt, after they were delivered from the Egyptians, they went to Mount Sinai, and there God provided the law to Moses. And now, as they had gone and they had rebelled, they didn't go in and take the land as they were, uh, as they were commanded by the Lord. They were disciplined as a result of that, spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Now, as they are about to embark over the Jordan again, they're about to do what God had wanted them to do 40 years earlier. Moses comes and gives a second giving of the law. He calls Israel and reminds them of their need of following what God had given. Now, I think it's important for us to recognize that at this time, Yahweh was Israel's king. So when we think of the type of government that the nation of Israel had at this time, it was that of a, what we call a theocracy. God was the king, and he would rule through what we would call a vice-regent. Moses would be the one that particularly provided his rule, provided his word to his people. 
although Moses himself was never really considered a king. He was a deliverer. He was a prophet. Um, he even performed priestly roles. And, and there were times where he would act uh, to some degree in a kingly office as he would make decisions and determinations. But even, even that became such a burden on him that he had to um, divide the work and, and divvy it up among a number of different people. So he never really took the idea, the role of a king. God, Yahweh, was the king of Israel. And so as Moses led Israel out of Egypt and toward the promised land, he fulfilled the role as leader, but God set himself up as the king of his people. He was to be the king. Now, how was this demonstrated? How was it demonstrated to Israel that God was king? And there's a, a number of different ways that he did this. The first was through dictating moral, civil, and ceremonial laws that they must follow. So the king was the one who directed the way of life for the subjects. Now, this was commonplace in the ancient Near East. And in fact, um, we'll talk a little bit later about how um, Egypt looked at the role of the pharaoh, who was a king, and determined that he was the one who determined what the law was for the people. God didn't give that to any one man. He gave it himself as he was the one who gave this law. He gave moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. And I mean, even if you look at things today, we, we see leaders of countries, um, leaders in the world today doing the same thing. There are moral imperatives to many of the laws that we have on the books today. There are civil laws that are given to determine how we interact with our neighbors. And yes, even today, there are ceremonial laws that have to be followed. Um, one of the things that I had in my notes for uh, this morning's sermon that I just didn't have time to get to was discussing uh, how Parliament has, has uh, these different laws for what happens when Parliament begins. And it was interesting, like when, when my wife and I and my parents went to visit London, we went on this, uh, we went on this double-decker tour bus tour. And our tour guide, uh, who was really an interesting guy, was telling us about how his queen was going to come out and they were going to do these ceremonial things so that the queen could begin the session of parliament. And it actually couldn't happen until the queen came and was invited by the House of Lords. And um, there's just, there was a lot of different things that, that went into that. And again, what, what was remarkable to me about that was the love that this guy had for his monarch, the love that he had for the queen. But those, a lot of those things that were going on there were ceremonial. There was no real reason for it other than it figured something. And so even today we have this type of thing happening. In Israel's time, God was the one who set those laws. It wasn't the traditions of men. It wasn't the ideas of men. It was the command of God himself. And so he demonstrated his kingship as the king over Israel by dictating these laws. We also see that he physically led Israel. His presence was given in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. The pillar of cloud led them by day. The pillar of fire led them by night. There was a visible representation that their king was with them. You know, if you look and you see how when kings would go to battle, it would often be a, a source of strength and encouragement to armies when the king would enter into their ranks, when he, would, when he would ride by them or he would charge them with the solemn duty that they had, the king's presence pushed the armies to do what they were called to do. 
And so it was with Israel. They, even though God is a spirit, we can, he has no form or substance like us, yet he displayed himself physically to his people, showing that his presence was there. We see that as he led Israel, he also led Israel as a warrior king. He gave victory to Israel as a warrior king through his power. This is going to become important when we understand, um, probably next week when we start talking about Israel's rejection of Yahweh as king. But God was the one who fought Israel's battles. God was the one who brought them victory. God was the one who gave them the promised land. Now, He would use them. He would give them commands and and what to do. And they would have to obey that, and God would give them victory. And, of course, we know when they would not obey His commands, they would be disobedient. Even if one person was disobedient, there would be disaster. And we we see that with the battle of Ai in the fact that Israel goes up and they're defeated. Why? There was sin in the camp. But yet God was the one who brought about their victories. I mean, think about the battle of Jericho. All right, imagine this army that is powerful, that has won battles, that's strong men. And what do they do? Do they ever attack the, the city initially? No, they march around it. They march around it for seven days. And on the seventh day, they march around it seven times and they blow trumpets. You know, and the walls fell down. Who, who made the walls fall, fall down? God did. It was His power that brought about the victory in Jericho. Now, the Israelites did go in and they conquered them, but it was God who brought them that victory. I think we need to recognize, as God is our king, that we, first of all, need to live in submission to what he says. God As your king, Christ as your king, has the absolute right to dictate how you should live. He has the absolute right to tell you what is right and what is wrong. We live in a world today that wants to cast off authority, that wants to cast off um, any type of, of moral imperative. We also have to recognize that just as God's presence was with His people Israel, so God's presence is given to us today in the Holy Spirit. We don't see Him physically, but His presence is palpable in the lives of His people. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift from our King to show that He is with us. Jesus promises His disciples as He gives them the great commission to go and to take the gospel into every nation, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all these things. And then he says at the end of that, and look, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so today our king is with us. And then we have to recognize that anything good that happens or is accomplished in our lives is done by the grace of God. He is the one who gives us victory. We respond. We have the responsibility to to respond to what He's called us to do, but He's the one who gives us that victory. We see some other ways in which Yahweh demonstrated His presence among His people, and we see that He instructs that a palace or temple be constructed for Him. Now, particularly in this point, it's not a permanent temple. Rather, He tells them to make a tabernacle, which is often called the tent of what? 
meeting. It would be often the the um, it would be often the the practice of kings in the ancient Near East societies surrounding Israel that when the armies were to go out for battle, the armies would set up camp, and in the midst of that camp, that would be the king's tent, the place where the king would reside among his people. And that, that tent would be in the center of his people. Guess where God commanded the tabernacle to be constructed? In the midst of the people, in the middle of of the people. They were to create this temple and, and to create this tabernacle, this palace for him. In, and it was to be arrayed in gold and it was to have the f- fine linen and it was to have the, the best building supplies and the most skillful uh, construction crew given to make these things like they were. It was so that the king could be with his people. Not only did he instruct that the palace be constructed, but then he dwelt in the palace, in the midst of his people. And so, Yahweh is called to be, or is shown to be, Israel's king. Now, we also have to recognize that God had also indicated that human kings would rule over his people. So, if we look back and we look at some of the prophecies that were mentioned, particularly of Jacob um, over his son Judah. And what does he say? Does anyone remember? The scepter will not depart from Judah until him to whom it belongs appears. And so there's a, a messianic promise there, but there's also the promise that a king would come from among Israel's own people that would rule over them. Now, what we find here in Deuteronomy 17, and so all of this has been introduction for, for what we're looking at this morning, or this morning, this evening, is that when the time would come for human kings to rule over Israel, what we find in our passage today in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is Moses providing important limitations on the power of these kings. And this is done to show ultimately that even though there may be a king of men over Israel, who is the ultimate king of God's people? Yahweh, God is. And so these limitations show that reality. Now, what are these limitations? So look with me, Deuteronomy chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. So look with Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. There Moses says to Israel, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, so that Yahweh your Adonai is giving you. So again, there's this emphasis. Even though Israel is going to be involved in the conquering and the conquest of Canaan, who is the one who's giving them that victory? It's God. He's the one doing this. It says, When you come and when you possess it and dwell in it and then say... I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now, this is prophetic because there's going to come a day later on, 150, 200 years later, where Israel will say, we want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. Moses is speaking prophetically here. And notice what he says. You may indeed set a king over you whom... 
the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, now here he gives these limitations to these kings. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, if you know the history of Israel, you, this is before, I mean, God, God is putting this in the law. Moses is warning Israel before they enter the promised land, don't do these things. If you know anything about Israel's history, do they do these things? Yes. And, and again, this is a, a warning for us to just, to just stop for a second and to recognize God's word is clear. It is abundantly clear. The problem is not with God's word. The problem is with who? With us. We can hear what God says. We can, we can recognize what His Word commands of us and the way that, we're ought to li- that we ought to live. And then yet we can hear that and it can go in, in one ear and out the other and we can do the exact thing that God forbids us from doing. Israel is given to be an example to us, to, to warn us of these type of things. So we need to be aware of this tendency and we need to bow our knees and to put our hearts in submission to our Lord. Verse 18, when he, this king that God has set up on the throne of his kingdom, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law, of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel and so we're going to see as God provides these restrictions on Israel's kings we're going to see two particular ways in which Israel's kings show dependence on Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, as king. And the first is we have to recognize that they are dependent on Yahweh's choice, showing that they are ultimately dependent, first of all, on Yahweh's ultimate reign. Right? The king may have the role of being the ruler of his people. He may govern his people, but ultimately it is God who is reigning over his people. How is this seen? Well, the first thing we see is they were not to amass military strength. We see this again in verse 16. So, so Moses again begins with the point, God is the one who chooses this. God is the one who places him. It is not Israel's choice. It is God's choice. When God puts this king on the throne, the warning, the first thing to him is that he must not acquire many horses for himself now what is he talking about like is it is it wrong to have horses is that is that what is that what moses is saying here and the point here is not that it's wrong to have horses but rather it's wrong to trust in those horses 
The horses here would refer to a cavalry, and, and in those days, the cavalry was um, the strongest aspect of a nation's army. Yes, their soldiers would go in and they would engage in hand-to-hand combat, but those who rode on the horses had speed, they had agility, they had strength behind them. And so oftentimes a, a, a nation's army was gauged in its power by the number of horses that they had. And so at the get-go, God speaks to kings to the Israel's future kings, and in one sense, calls them to weakness. Don't amass horses. Don't make or acquire many horses for yourself. And again, this is to remind Israel's kings that the power for their victory over the battles that they're going to face is not found in their strength. It's found in the strength of the Lord. He is the one who fights their battles for him. David describes this in Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But David understood. What did he choose? We trust where? In the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand Upright. One of the things that David is expressing in this psalm is that you can have all the horses in the world. You can have all the military might that this world has to give, and yet it doesn't hold a candle to the power of God. Those who have horses and chariots, those who trust in those horses and in those chariots, what happens to them? They collapse and fall, they're defeated. Over and over again in Israel's history, we see them as this small nation that is going up against the giants that seemingly surround them. And who wins? If they're trusting in Yahweh, they win. And so it was important for the king to recognize that his victory came not by the means of his physical strength, not by the means of his military strength, but by the hand of the Lord. He was the one who brought victory. And just as they were not to amass military strength by gathering a number of horses, secondly, we see that they were not to forge military alliances. Now, I have 2 Kings chapters 23 and 24 there, and we're not going to go there today, but I have that there because it particularly involves Egypt. Now, if you look here in what he says in verse 16, at the end of verse 16, so don't acquire many horses for himself. And then secondly, don't cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Now, we we see that the focus here is that because Israel has been delivered from Egypt, they're not to go back to Egypt But the overarching principle here is that Israel is to find their strength in Yahweh, not in military alliances. There's going to be a temptation in Israel's history. And in fact, we see it over and over again for them as they are facing huge armies that have come down and won great victories. There's going to be a temptation for them to say, well, let me reach out to Syria. Let me reach out to um, reach out to uh, the, the Egyptians. 
and forge military alliances with them so that they would fight our battles for them. And what you find in 2 Kings 23, 31 through 24, 7 is that this is a real temptation for Israel's kings later on. I mean, imagine that you have the Assyrian army that is voracious in the things that they do. They don't just defeat their enemies. They destroy them. They annihilate them. Imagine that these nations had come and and had actually taken captive the northern kingdom. And here you are, the small southern kingdom of Judah. And every one of the other tribes, except for for you and and, uh, another tribe, are, are gone. And this, this nation is coming against you. You're thinking, well, I can go down to Egypt. And they've got chariots. They've got horses. They've got power. And what does that show? It shows that you're doubting the power of God. Thankfully, we see that throughout some of those instances, Israel does trust in God. And they're given amazing, miraculous victories. But here at the outset... Moses is charging the future kings of Israel to not forge these military alliances. I think it's important for us, particularly as the charge is to not go back to Egypt, it can be tempting for us to go back to a dependence on the way of life we had before we knew Christ. I mean, it's familiar to us. It, in some regards, worked in providing things for us. And we can easily be led astray to think that our trust, our confidence is in riches, is in the, the might of our bank accounts, finding security and all these other things when God is just saying, I'm holding you in my right hand. No one can touch you there. Why seek comfort in other things? He is the only one who will never fail you. I think this is, this is important for us to remember in particular as we look at some of the financial distresses that are happening today. You know, you look at these banks, these smaller banks that are, that are folding, and, and you wonder, well, what's going to happen to my money? I mean, we look at what's happening from the political landscape, and is, is the debt ceiling going to be raised? Are they going to come to some sort of you know, agreement? And, and if they don't, what's going to happen? Look, God cares for his people don't put your trust in those things put your trust in him he will never fail you and so we need to even though we don't have military alliances that we're i mean i hope you're not forging the military alliances but even though we don't have military alliances that we're forging today i pray that we wouldn't forge practical alliances with the things of this world and find our hope in Christ alone. The third thing that we see that shows that Israel was dependent on Yahweh's ultimate reign was that they were not to acquire many wives. Verse 17 is a stark warning to Israel's kings. Deuteronomy 17, 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. Why? Lest his heart... Turn away, lest his heart turn away. What 
What king of Israel does this particularly speak of? Solomon. I mean, think about King Solomon. Here is a guy who was given every advantage. He was born to King David. He was, in many ways, the redeeming son of King David because it was a, he, his mother was Bathsheba. And so what, what began as tragedy and, and horrific sin, God was able to, as he often does, turn to bring about the next king of Israel. Solomon was influenced by his father, and we see his father uh, coming to Solomon and influencing him to the point where when God says, ask of me something, and Solomon comes, and he doesn't ask for riches, he doesn't ask for wealth, he doesn't ask for power, what does he ask for? Wisdom. And God gives him that wisdom, which I think is important to keep in mind that the wisest man, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ that ever walked the earth, he also failed to listen to what God had to say. Let us not think that we have ever arrived. Solomon, from, he would have been a banner Christian in churches. And yet his heart was turned away. What was it turned away by? By many wives. Look at what's said here in 2 Kings 11, 1 through 5. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, that's important to keep in mind. Where did God say? First of all, God forbid intermarrying among God's people, period. But in particular, as He's commanding these kings, He says, don't go to Egypt. Don't forge military alliances with Egypt. Where is one of the first places Solomon goes? Egypt. He says he loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Then we have these other ones, the Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they um, with you, for they will turn your heart after after their gods. So what did Solomon do? He clung to these in love. Now, again, notice what it says. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. Now, there would be some who would say, ah, but God doesn't describe what many is. Is it four? Is it five? Is it seven? Is it ten? I think 700 counts as many wives. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Now, there is a connection here likely between all of these wives and forging military alliances because back in that day, one of the ways that nations would enter into contracts or allegiances with each other, into treaties with each other, is a king would give his daughter as a wife to the king of the nation that they were entering into this allegiance so that there would be a blood connection. You know, Solomon wouldn't want to go against his father-in-law. That's really the idea that was, that was going on here. But again, notice what happened here. 700 wives, 300 concubines, and what happens? His wives turned away his heart. His wives turned away 
his heart. Again, notice what Moses says in our passage, Deuteronomy 17, 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. I guess the geese like that point, so... It says here, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his Adonai, to the Lord his God. What happened from a practical standpoint when when Solomon brought in these wives that turned his heart away? He no longer recognized Yahweh as the ultimate king. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And not only did it bring a reproach upon him as he turned away from God, but it was also a reproach on the fact that he was turning away from the way of his father. It says, as was the heart of David his father. And then here's what happened. Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. I'm not going to go into the detail of what was involved in the worship of those gods, but it was horrendous. You have, you have the God who at His right hand has pleasures forevermore given to those people who come to Him, and then you have the filth of, of horrific worship to these other gods. And Solomon, who is the king of Israel, his heart is turned away not to seek Yahweh, but to worship in a horrible way. This is a reminder to us, again, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. It can be so easy for us, it's so easy for us to seek to be like the world around us. I mean, everyone wants to fit in, you want to get along, you, you want to be able to... to you know, just go along life and have the things that this world has. Listen, we're pilgrims. We don't belong here. So let's not get caught up in the things of this world. The final thing that Moses points to here, again in verse 17, not acquire many wives, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. They were not to accumulate wealth. Now, what's interesting here as well is that if the king didn't have a lot of wealth, that would actually also limit his ability to have trade and commerce with other nations. And so in in this way, God is also limiting his dependence so that it's not a matter of, oh, I I will give so much money to this king and that he will come and rescue me. That wasn't what was to happen here. It also would protect the king from becoming too big for his britches, if I can put it that way. You know, it is, it is amazing how riches and how wealth brings about a haughty spirit. That when you have money and, and you're able to, to, to buy things from a material standpoint and perspective, it's very easy to get drawn away into the ways of this world and to think you're better than you are. It's interesting here. Solomon 
gives us wisdom for this in Proverbs 28, 20 through 22. Who is the man who abounds with blessings? A faithful man. One who does faithfully what God has called him to do. A faithful man will abound with blessings. But the person who hastens to be rich, the idea of hastening to be rich is that that is the zealous focus of your life. It is what what drives the way you live. The person who hastens that way will not go unpunished. Then he says, what, ha- what does riches do? It begins to corrupt the way we interact with people so that we begin showing partiality to those who have riches. This was a problem in the New Testament church. Paul rebukes the churches and says, listen, you, these people who have money are coming into your, your congregations and, and they're receiving the place of honor. They're, they're the ones that you give this, this place of honor at the love feast that was happening. Stop it! You're all the same under the grace of God. He says, To show partiality is not good, but for a piece of man, piece of bread, a man will do wrong. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. It's interesting how Solomon lays that out. A stingy man. You know, oftentimes we think, well, someone who's not spending a lot, they're, they're very wise in the way that they're using their funds. And there is truth to that. But listen, we should never be stingy so that we can heap up the wealth to ourselves. We're to be open, generous. Has not God been generous with us? So we're called to do that. So all of these things in these First verses here, up through verse 17, show us that Israel's kings were to be dependent upon Yahweh's ultimate reign. But then we come to verses 18 through 20, and we see an emphasis on the reality that Israel king, Israel's kings were to be dependent on Yahweh's law. There is a recognition of the sovereign reign of God over His people, but that sovereign reign is mitigated and described through the Word of God that is given to His people. And who is the one, as they're leading Israel, who's the one who's the most responsible for enforcing that law? The king. And so if the king is to live according to the law, guess what he needs to know? The law. And so how is this to be brought about? Well, look at what he says here, first of all, verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, so when he's placed into power, what is the first thing he's supposed to do? He shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest. He, the king, was to copy the law. The king was to copy the law. Now this, this is interesting because... Why, why would he need to do this? Right? This would be, in many respects, a tedious task. How many of you are, 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 are jonesing to get up on Monday morning and start writing down sections of Leviticus? Anybody wanting to jump at that? I don't think so. Why, why is he doing this? Well, I think, first of all, when you copy something down, when you read something, then when you hear it, and then in particular when you write it down yourself, it gives you a familiarity with it that you probably wouldn't get otherwise. 
I think this is something, I'll just give a little challenge out there. This is something that we would probably be good, that would do well for us to take the Word of God and to write it out, to copy it. It's another way for us to get the input of God's Word stuck in our minds as we write these things out. So it, pr- it provides a way for the king to become very familiar with God's law. Particularly as they wrote their own book of the law, and then someone were to come and have a question or a dispute, the king would know, oh, I remember writing about that on page 354 of my copy of the book of the law. And then, secondarily, what this does is it provides a way for God to preserve His Word. It's interesting to me that this is the means by which God is ordaining that His Word be preserved. There's a lot of talk today about preservation and how God's Word has been preserved for us. And the answer is, how has God preserved His Word? People have written it down. They've copied it over and over and over again. So that if you were to look at all of the ancient documents that are existence today and compare them to just the New Testament documents, it is by far and large multiple times over more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient writing. And that's, that principle is found in seed form here when it's given to the king, copy the law. But it wasn't just enough that he, were to, he was to copy the law. Look at verse 19. After he copied the law and he had this book of the law that he had made, this book was to be with him. He's supposed to read in it all the days of his life. And that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law, all these statutes, and doing them. So the king was not only to copy the law, he was to study the law. He was to spend every day of his life enmeshed and immersed in what God had given him. Again, this is a challenge for us to not make our Bible reading just about checking off a box. We need to learn of God's Word when we read it. It's interesting that he says that this is something that's to create within him an ability to learn to fear the Lord his God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A king needs a lot of wisdom. And as he studies the law, he is given that wisdom from God. Do we need wisdom today? Oh, yeah. We need lots of wisdom today. Where do you find it? The law of God, God's Word. There are riches untold. But it's not just enough to copy the law and study the law. The king was then, finally, to obey the law. Notice what he says there again. As he learned to fear the Lord his God, how does he show the fear of the Lord? By keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. By keeping and doing them, this intense study was meant to teach the king that inward fear produces outward obedience. It's what we've been talking about in 2 Peter. That we're to not just simply say that we have faith, but we need to show that that faith is real in the way in which we live our lives. 
And so the king was to obey the law. Now this separated Israel's kings from every other king in the nations around them because the king was in many ways considered above the law or the creator of the law. Sometimes when I'm studying, I, uh, I get um, into these little rabbit trails of archaeological stuff. And so I was learning about the Egyptian pharaohs and the way that they handled the law, the law in that day, which was, it was actually more like a way of life, a moral way of living, that they were the ones that were considered the ones who described what that was like for, for the Egyptians. This was the case with most of the nations surrounding Israel. The king set what they were supposed to do. And when one king would be deposed, another king would come up, and now he was the one who would set the way things were supposed to do. And so what you end up having when you look to the laws of men is inconsistency, constantly changing expectations, a target that you can never hit because it's constantly going back and forth. And God provided for Israel, look, your king must obey the law. He's not over the law. He must obey the law. Why? Because the king was not the ultimate authority. God is. It shows a submission to who he is. Now, as we all know, Israel had many kings. And of course, the height of the kingdom of Israel, from a human perspective, was seen in David. He's a man who was after God's own heart. He's a man who, who sought righteously to live his life. He's a man who, when he had the opportunity to kill the man who was trying to kill him, Saul, he spared his life because he didn't want to touch the Lord's anointed. I mean, talk about, talk about submission to a bad ruler. And yet... Did David keep all the words of the law and do them perfectly? No. Which shows us finally that the king was to be humbled by the law. Notice in verse 20. Why is he to keep all the words of the law so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother? When you recognize what God's requirement is and then you realize how far you fall, how far short you fall from that requirement, that is not a pathway to arrogance. That's a pathway to humility. He goes on that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left and that in doing so he may continue long in his kingdom. He and his children in Israel. I think it's important to note here. David, the best of the kings of Israel, he has one direct descendant who ascends to the kingdom, Solomon. And then after that, what happens? Civil war. The kingdom ends up getting split into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then over time, as these nations continue to fall into idolatry, God disciplines them and sends the Assyrians, sends the Babylonians, and eventually what happens? There is no king in Israel. So when 
Moses speaks here of someone who doesn't turn to the right hand or the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That does not happen. Why? Because the kings turn away from the law of God. There's an amazing story. You're very familiar with it, with how the law was used to humble a king. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. This is the greatest, from a human perspective, of Israel's kings. Nathan comes to David after he had sinned with Bathsheba and after he had arranged for the murder of her husband. And so Nathan the prophet comes. Now what's interesting here is, you look at the way he, Nathan approaches David and confronts him here. He's standing before the king, the one who has a lot of power, but yet he still speaks with authority. Not because Nathan had the authority, but because he spoke the word of the Lord. And David himself recognizes this. So in 2 Samuel 12, 4 through 6. Now, Nathan comes and says, I have a story to tell you. There was a traveler who came to a rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had gone to, had come to him. So essentially what we have is a man has all sorts of riches. Ah, I'm not going to use all of this that I have. I'm going to take from this, this one man, this man who has one sheep. And I'm going to steal it, kill it, cook it, and give it to my guest. And so Nathan came and said, essentially to David, what should be done here? And David is filled with righteous indignation. I mean, wouldn't you be as well? How dare this rich man do this? He was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now what's interesting here, David is the king. So what was David supposed to do with the law? Copy it, study it. Guess what? He knows the law. Exodus chapter 22 verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And so we have this, this, this recognition here with, with uh, David that, look, this should be hap- this is what happens. He should be held accountable to the law. We know what happens in this story. Nathan looks to David after he says this, and he says, You are the man. Crushing David's recognition of what he's done and it brings about repentance it brings about a sorrowful focus from David at what he had done against the Lord and it was a means to humbling David so Israel kings Israel's kings were dependent on Yahweh's choice they were dependent on Yahweh's ultimate reign and they were dependent on Yahweh's law we have to recognize that God fully sanctioned the office of the king of kings in Israel. But that office must be 
fulfilled according to God's requirements. But we'll find out next as we look past the conquest to the time of the judges when Israel was continuing to have Yahweh as their king, a continual cycle of rebellion and then ultimately rejection of Yahweh as king. But before we talk about that next week, just one thing I wanted to point out. The king, the true kings of Israel, were to have a heart that was humble, a heart that did not turn aside either to the right hand or the left to God's command, commands that he would keep all the words of the law and do them. I said that David was the greatest king from a human standpoint of God's kingdom. But who is the ultimate, true, great king of the kingdom? Jesus Christ. Did he know the law? Yes, he wrote it. Not just writing it by copying it. He is the originator of the law. Did he humble himself? Yes. He humbled himself and became like us and became obedient unto death. Did he keep all the words of the law and do them all? Yes. He was tempted in every point like as we are. But the thing that sets Jesus apart from every man, from every woman, from every queen, from every king, from every ruler on this earth is that he did not sin. And so Israel's true king is going to be someone who fulfills these requirements and it is found in Jesus alone. We're going to continue to look at Israel's kings and we're going to see failure after failure after failure of men. And what does that teach us? We need a better Savior than the saviors of men. We need God to save us. And praise God, Christ is that Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we truly seek as we are restored in Christ to be your vice regents here on earth, Lord, may we seek to take your law and to live by it, to live underneath your reign, to realize we are not our own, that you are our Lord. Father, take your word and apply it to our hearts and lives. May we take these truths and live them out this week by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.